0: Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We pray that you are blessed by the sharing of God's truth for us this day. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. I I thought about this passage in Scripture um, the way that I normally do, which means I probably overthought everything. But before we delve into this, I would like for you to uh, go ahead and and in your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. Turn to Luke chapter 7. But I want you to have your pins ready because I think that given where we are in this present time, there's something else that I need to address first. And I'm going to ask for your prayer as I go through this. Um, As many of you know, I do not preach politics. The idea of freedom of religion is a Baptist gift to the rest of Christianity. We were the first to proclaim it as an idea. The oldest written text on the issue of the church not being interfered on by the state was from Thomas Helwes, the first Baptist pastor. At least the first lifelong Baptist pastor. But we are staring not necessarily at a... We're staring at a crisis... Of ethics we're staring at a crisis of the soul of who we are as a people and we've been staring at it for close to 50 years so I'm going to share with you what the Bible says about the death of the unborn so I'd like for you please to take out your pens and pencils and either in the flyleaf of your Bible or on your bulletins. I realize we don't have slides prepared for this, but I'm going to read the texts from the Bible. And I'd like for you, just for your own edification, to take down at least the references, the verses. And I'll let the Bible speak. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Humanity made in the sacred image of God. In our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, over all the livestock, all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. Exodus 21, 22, and 23 tells us, If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she has a birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court calls for. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. Did you catch that? Deuteronomy 27.25, Cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Then let all the people say amen. This is when the people of Israel were first calling for curses and blessings within the Bible. Psalm 22, 9 and 10, David writes, You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even from my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. All of this is saying basically that God has regard for the child. God has regard for the yet unborn. God does not see a collection of tissues once conception has been achieved. God does not see that life as optional. But as a human life made in his image and under a significant amount of care. In fact, as we're about to see, the idea of ending a life prematurely before it has a chance to begin is so foreign in concept that one of the prophets of God condemns a society right there next to Israel for practicing it as part of the ritual sacrifices. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Every human life qualifies as being fearfully. Can you imagine God being afraid of anything? And yet he approaches the generation of life made in his image, each individual person with an extraordinary amount of care, fearfully, wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place; when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me was written in your book before one of them came to be. God has regard for children yet unborn. An intimate knowledge of them, looking at them, caring for them. The prophet Amos in Amos one thirteen. This is what the Lord says for the three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend its borders. This was unthinkable. uh, Judaism in the Mosaic period placed a high value on human life no matter what the stage. The rest of the surrounding tribes did not have that. So part of their custom included The death of unborn children and the sacrifice of both the mother and the child. And right here we see that God condemns them for both acts. Isaiah 5 20 and 21, woe to those who call evil good and good. I didn't even have to finish it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness before light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Those who either ignore the wisdom of God or try to mangle it to suit their own ends. Jeremiah 1, 4-5, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I, I knew you. Before you were yet born, I knew you. I knew your personality. I knew the plans I had for you. I knew everything that was going into your makeup. Before you were born, I knew you. I set you apart. I sanctified you, in other words. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Proverbs six sixteen through 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deceives wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. Many of the pulpits in our nation right now need to listen to this. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. I want you to notice that last bit as well. Here's a command of God written for us in Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. I would include the rights of those yet unborn. Because as many of you know, one of the few things that I can attest on the beginning of my own life story is that I could have been one of those that died before he was given a chance to live. Now I've, I've told you also multiple times about, you'll have to reset it again, I'm sorry. The fact that my mother and my father are Eddie and Marianne Robbins. From as long as I can remember they were, they always will be. But I also know that they welcomed me into a home because someone, in circumstances that I don't know, chose rather than to see her biological son executed on the altar of convenience, I was offered an opportunity for a life. I'm proud to have the name Robbins. I always will be. But I also remember my story. If you wonder why I'm so passionate about this particular subject among others, that's why. I will not tell you who to vote for. Because I think that's crossing a line that many of our forebearers fought long and hard to establish. But I will tell you this. What's right is right. What's wrong is wrong. And part of the spiritual health of an individual and the community they serve, including and especially the church, is its ability to live rightly, love mercy, and walk humbly where? Before your God. What does the Lord require of you but that you do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before your God? This, this, This is an affront to the very God who created us. And I'm not talking about measures Uh, to prevent conception. I'm not discussing that. I'm talking about what happens when life begins and is then considered expendable. If the innocent of the unborn is considered expendable, what other life is also considered expendable? Later on, who else do we say doesn't deserve the right to live. I want you to consider these things as our society continues to move. Let's get into the gospel according to St. Luke. Take out your copy of God's word with me and let's begin again at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you remember from last Sunday, our Savior brought someone who was dead back to life. A child of a grieving mother. And everybody who was in that city saw this miracle and they scattered as fast as a rumor and spread the truth of Jesus' healing power of his knowing that he was a prophet of God and that you have to listen to this guy. You have to hear what he has to say. You have to see him do these wonders. You have to, to experience the miracles of the man's presence. He could be the Messiah. So, so his ministry blossomed and word of his deeds reached the dungeon's of Herod's palace where John the Baptist, not the same Herod in Jesus's day, but, but John the Baptist who was being held there sent messengers out because he knew that his time was growing short. Also knew his place, excuse me, he also knew his place in scriptural history. He knew that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And all the time he has it in his head, the words of Isaiah, that say that that all these things are going to happen, but that the day of the Lord will also come. And he's expecting, as a prophet of God, as an Old Testament-style prophet, he's expecting that he's going to see the kingdom of Israel restored, to see Jerusalem become the capital city of the planet Earth, to see God's fullness completed. Now, we talked about in Daniel chapter 9 the rationale behind the coming of the Lord that uh, it would end sin, that it would weigh iniquity, that, that the rebellion would be put to an end and all these wonderful things that they were expecting. But yet John was chained. So he sends others, bless you, he sends others to the side of Christ to ask them point blank, are you the one who is to come or should we search for another? knowing that either way, his followers had to go somewhere. They needed a new teacher. He was going to perish. And so he says to them, see with your own eyes. The dead are raised. The sick are healing. The lame leap. And the good news of the gospel is being preached to the poor. So they go their way and they make their report. But there are others there standing around the crowd, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who were spying on him basically for the temple, who wanted to see what all these things were. They didn't know John's baptism. That was what the people of the land, what the plebeians, what the lowlifes, what the dirt mongers did. They were the rich. They were the powerful. They were the ones of the true religion. After all, if I wear the sharp clothes, if I have all the money, God blesses me, right? More than he does these vile sinners who seek after this false prophet. That was their conception of John. That was also their conception of Jesus. So Jesus is looking at the Pharisees that are confronting them. And he says in verse 31, Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children singing in the marketplace and calling to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he is a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, this morning, Jesus is confronted by them because they John lived a, a life wholly devoted to God. He was kind of an image of of Sam of Samuel the prophet and of Daniel in that they wouldn't let anything that would violate them touch their lips. He, he was more he <coughs> could have very well been a Nazarite from early childhood, someone who set himself very much a part for God and for God's ministry. He did not indulge in anything worldly. He kept the law. He was, again, he's written about in the New Testament, but he was a prophet of the old covenant. So he lived the law and he preached this message of repentance and baptism as a demonstration of that commitment. The death of the old in favor of the rising of the new. Does that sound familiar? And people came far and wide. The poor, the destitute, those who had no hope came to him, declared themselves a sinner before everybody, and was baptized in John into a life of recommitment. And Jesus says, what am I going to, what am I going to, to describe this current generation to? They are like children. Children who Jean Piaget describes as not being able yet to, um, to, to have empathy with anybody else. We're singing and we're dancing over here, you should be too. We're playing a funeral dirge, we're sorrowful, we're crying, why aren't you? They can't read the other people. They can't, in their own minds, they're unable, because of childishness, not childlikeness, they're unable to understand the very people that they're ministering to, so they don't meet their needs, They don't meet their wants and desires. They don't feed them with anything spiritually nourishing except for the plastic of their own glorification. So Jesus is calling them out here and saying, you're like a bunch of two-year-olds. You cannot see someone else for your own lack of vision of yourselves. How many of us as parents have witnessed someone going through the terrible twos? I've fallen and I've hurt my knee. I'm crying, mommy, daddy, why aren't you crying? Or the this is mine stage, where they go through every drawer, every shelf, everything that they can find. This is mine, and this is mine, and this is mine, and this is mine. That's what he's saying about the Pharisees. You are so stuck in yourselves. That you cannot discern the needs of the people that you've been called to minister to. So you look at John the Baptist, someone who denies himself all worldly pleasure so he can focus everything he has on God, the man who cries in the wilderness, who, who wears camel skin, who eats nothing except locusts and wild honey for, the, for a lifelong fast, in other words, and yet you claim that he's a demon. And Jesus goes and he eats with and he ministers to those who are sinners, those who need the gospel, those who need repentance. And he's right there next to them in the streets, in the cities, in the restaurants, in their homes. And the Pharisees are looking at him who are doing the job that they should be doing and say he's a drunkard. But he calls back to his own ancestor Solomon and he says, wisdom, the wisdom of God... Will be justified in what we do. We all need a Jesus in our lives. We all need the loving compassion of our Savior. We also need to both reach out to and be that kind of minister for each other that is willing to set aside our rose-colored glasses or the uh, set aside ourselves and to see the other person, their needs, spiritual, physical, emotional. Be willing to be that minister for everyone that we see. Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. As we're going to see, this is not an invitation out of kindness. This is an invitation out of spite. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman of that town who had lived a sinful life Learned that Jesus was eating in the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Ointment in some of your translations. It was probably more along the lines of a a rendered fat substance that was used to help soothe someone's sores. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured the perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had been invited, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So this is a lady who had a reputation. This is someone who one of the rabbis should not be associating with. Now, this is a case in point for Jesus for what he just said in the previous section. This is a woman who was in spiritual need, spiritual destitution, a great amount of red in her ledger that she knew she could not pay. But she heard about this Jesus. Chances are good that she heard about the other times when he said, Go your way, your sins have been forgiven. And whatever, say you what you will about her reputation, apparently she was very much a God fearing woman because she had the fear of God in her that led her to this act. But the Pharisees didn't want repentance, they wanted condemnation. The Pharisees wanted to point their finger, they wanted to pick the fight. Remember, as I said earlier this morning, as Christians, we should never, ever pick the battle. We should never start the war. But when it comes, we should be ready to defend ourselves. And Jesus does precisely that in this section. But the Pharisee wanted to pick the fight. He wanted to see her lined up and stoned. He wanted to see her suffer under the consequences of a righteous law. Jesus had something else entirely in mind. So she comes to a house where she was not invited to a banquet that she had no right to be at. Now at this time, tables were not tables as we think of them. They were not tall, almost counter-height places where you'd sit in a chair and eat with knife and fork. What you would do is there would be a table set along the ground that would probably only uh, give you about two inches worth of clearance, and a bunch of couch cushions, effectively, would be set down apart, and you would line face first, you would lie down face first, uh, facing the table, you would be reclining with your left hand tucked behind your head, and you'd use your right hand to feed yourself. It was a much different culture. So this lady goes to a place filled with people that she can't be around. The Pharisees cannot be around a lady that is not their wife. It's part of their thing. Part of their, their, their willingness to show their over piety. If you see a bruised Pharisee, it's probably because he tried to turn away from seeing a single woman. So there he was, confronted not only by a woman alone with him that was uninvited, but someone who had... A very sinful reputation. The Bible doesn't go on to say what kind, but we can make inferences given the culture. And the Pharisees again pick at Jesus. If he had any kind of insight from God, he would know who this woman is, and he would condemn them. That's what they're thinking. Verse 40, Jesus said, Jesus answered him, Simon, not the Simon that we would come to know later as Peter. Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And again, this is the guy that invited him over. And chances are good, like the mean girl at high school. You weren't invited to the table. You weren't invited to the table out of friendship. You were invited to the table so that they could mock you, ridicule you, and throw your lunch on you. So this Pharisee says, Go ahead, you've got something to say, let's hear it, thinking that this is where the trap is going to be sprung. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other one 50. A denarii, in other words, is is a whole day's worth of wages in this culture. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them loved him more? Simon replied, I suppose, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. If you have a spiritual debt, would you raise your hand? If you're a human being, that's a trick question because the answer is automatic. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus is calling him out in a very indirect way, trying to get him to see the point. He's about to get very direct, but he starts out very subtly. I've got a parable for you. There's this one person that has a great known debt on their shoulders. Another person who's tried to live piously, so not as big of a debt, but they still have a debt. If the king forgives them both, which is going to be more likely to show love to the king? the one who had the greatest debt. Seems logical. Let's see what else Jesus says about this. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your I want you to notice this too. Does it say your works has saved you? Does it say your perfume has saved you? Does it say your tears and your hair have saved you? No, it says your faith has saved you. Faith was what compelled her to do the things that she did. Faith was what initiated within her the heart of repentance that drove her to the actions, but it was her faith that was the foundation of her repentance. Simon, who who asked Jesus to come to his house, more than likely to persecute him still, didn't even offer him the basic customary uh, consideration. This was a sandal-wearing culture where people walked for a living miles at a time, something that we're not familiar with. So it was customary as as a member of the same community to offer them water to wash their feet, a simple courtesy. They greeted each other by kissing each other on the lips, the kiss of shalom, the kiss of peace. It was a basic greeting. Yet, and, and I know that that seems strange in our culture. If you have any people in your lives that are French, you could probably refer to that, or Italian, they do it too. It was very much the way in this culture. That was how they said shalom. That's how they gave a greeting. We we offer a handshake. More than likely, being a rich person, he would have offered lotion for his feet, for himself. Remember, they live in a desert. But Jesus basically comes to him and says, you haven't even offered me the basic courtesies required by our culture. She might have committed a bunch of sins, sins of commission. You have committed sins of omission. This woman has demonstrated love for a fellow person. You've demonstrated utter contempt. She knew that she had a debt on her ledger, one that she could not repay. So she came begging for forgiveness. And as a token of that faith, she demonstrated by doing the very things that you refuse to do. And yet you stand there in debt and you don't even know it. The lesson here is simple. For many of us who grew up in churches, there's a temptation to think of ourselves as better than those that we seek to minister to. This person is a drug addict. We can't let them in the church. This person is poor. They stink. We can't let them in our congregation. What will everybody think of us? This person is who they that you have been called to serve. The people that we prepare our snack bags to are the very people that we should also be meeting with open arms. Them and their parents, their brothers and sisters. Not ministering to a niche but the whole. We have a a trap laid in front of us as a church in the American culture that says that we are sinless. No, we're not sinless. We've been forgiven, and we need to realize that. There, but the grace of God, go I. Are we any better? Jesus was poor. A man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, the Bible tells us. He was the one that ministered without having a home to call his own. The Pharisee should have been to Jesus because that's what his job was. Even though Jesus was, for all intents and purposes, he he was a rabbi, but he was someone who was destitute. He was someone who didn't have a home. He was someone who wandered around the Jewish countryside. He should have been welcomed in with the basic courtesies and love. He was given moderate courtesies. the woman had nothing whatsoever, a non-person to this priest's eyes and he comes to this door to the door of this priest, going to Jesus in her own way, weeping in remorse for what she has done. The priest denied her. Christ accepted her, and so must we. If someone comes to the doors of this church, or any church, and they need help, something that they're struggling with, sin has invaded their lives the way that it invades all of ours, preach the gospel to them, yes. Put them in a place where they can be healed, yes. Keep them accountable as we all should be accountable for their repentance, yes. But love them. Remembering the same type of love that Christ demonstrates here. Paul writes to us from 2 Corinthians 5. All this the gospel, the blood of Christ, where without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us as an inheritance of that act the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us it's the message of reconciliation. Forgive as you have been forgiven. For those that have sinned more than you have, be the minister of reconciliation that they need. Be Christ to them. That's the definition of the word Christian is Christ-like. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. But in your hearts, revere the Lord. Revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared. This is switching over to the Apostle Peter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with all gentleness in respect write that in the flyleaf of your bible right now first peter 3:15 this is one of the top memory verses that we should have right after john 3:16 revere christ as the lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone no matter who they are no matter what they've done no matter what they look like no matter what they sound like no matter what they smell like always be ready to give an answer to anyone that asks you that question What makes you different? What makes you want to love people instead of hate them? What makes you want to, to teach people instead of spoiling for a fight? What makes you a bringer of peace in your own home? Always be prepared to give an answer. When anyone asks you, what is your hope? What makes you different? But do so always in gentleness and respect. So the challenge that we are left with right now, when we approach the altar, before we made our profession of faith, Who were we in this mirror? Were we the woman with the alabaster jar who had a lot of red on her ledger? Or were we the Pharisee? Someone who had been raised in the faith? Someone who had been maybe a little too used to the things of God and therefore could not see their own sinful state? Are we ready to lay down and declare the fact that no matter how we came to the altar, we were a sinner. Are we mature enough in the faith to stand as Christ once stood and be willing to embrace the people that come to us to help show them where forgiveness lies, to help show them the love of God, to help them find not only the grace of forgiveness, but a pathway to repentance? Are we mature enough to not be the priest, but to be Christ? That's what this passage challenges us with. All God's people said. Heavenly Father, as we come to the conclusion of your service of the word this morning, give us the strength to declare The truth of your word, the truth of your gospel, not as one fighting, but as an ambassador reconciling, as a maker of peace, as a bringer of hope, as one who challenges the sinful to see a better way. Help us to do the ministry that you have called us to do. Help us to remain strong in the faith for ourselves that we may demonstrate the difference that you make. And Lord, as we enter into our time of invitation, forgive us for we have been the Pharisee. Forgive us for the times that we have denied others for being different, for having the wrong type of life, for having the wrong past for having the wrong set of circumstances. Embolden us to proclaim the gospel to everyone. To declare what is right in your eyes. Help us to be the people that you have called us to be. And if there are any that have yet to come to know you as their Savior and Lord, if there are any that don't know that love that you offer, nor the majesty that you should hold in our hearts. Draw them to repentance now. For those burdens that weigh down on us, Lord, help us to endure them. Help us to run the course, to bring glory to your name, to honor the ministry for which you have called us all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.